Hello and welcome to the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. I'm Chris. And today I'm chatting with my sister and my brother. So, some scintillating sibling chatter coming up. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode four of series three of the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. And we're at that sort of midpoint of the series where we're going to take time for a bit of reflection today. And the sun has hidden itself. Um, Well, at least here in Watford, and whilst the wind whistles in the background, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by my ageing siblings, Charlotte Newstead and Jim Newstead. Lottie, as she is known to those who know her, is a classical soprano, singing teacher, and runs music appreciation classes. And Jim, as he is known to those who know him and those who don't know him, is a rock drummer and dance composer, who you may have heard in a previous episode explaining more about his YouTube channel that bears his name. Um, how are you both? I'm great, Chris. Thanks for asking me to be here. It's lovely. Jane? Yeah, I'm all right. Not too bad, bro. Not too bad. Lovely. And whereabouts in the world are you? Well, I sort of know this, but our listeners don't. Lottie, where are you? I'm in Bristol in the west where it's been very, very windy overnight. You are my lover. And Jim? Uh, still in Milton Keynes. Still in Milton Keynes. Yeah, the lockdown hasn't eased. Still here. That sounds like a novel from the 50s. Ah, oh, still in Milton Keynes. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so we haven't spoken for a week or two. How are things sort of going? What's happening in your world, Jim? Yeah, uh, much the same as always, really. I mean, nothing, what, generally life, you mean? Or, or well, yeah, well, I don't you know. know. Have you been listening to much? Um, yes. Um, an awful lot of Haken which is uh, a band that I've been listening to a lot lately. Um, you may or may not have come across. I don't think I've heard of that one. Lottie? I've been uh, sharing various different tracks with um, my music appreciation group. So in the last uh, week, I've listened to Delius on hearing the first Cuckoo in Spring, because that felt like it might be appropriate. And indeed, the sun did come out that day. And then this week, I've been having a bit of an Elgar fest. So I've had the Dream of Gerontius and the Sea Pictures. Oh, this is very exciting. So I should imagine there are probably not too many people having conversations who spent their weeks listening to Hagen, Thelius, and uh, the jazz that I've been listening to, which has been Camilla George. Ah. Uh, so there we go. So this that sort of brings me on to what I want to talk about today, um, because I really, really want to discuss is genres and how relevant you feel they are. Um, this has come up again and again and again uh, on shows of recent times. Um, so obviously this podcast carries jazz in its title. Uh, But for me, and obviously for so many people I'm speaking with, that's no more than an opening. Um, And it's probably why the word junction is so important to me, since you get to spiral, I guess, onto different tracks that lead to discovery and newness and all that whatnot. Do you both sort of feel centred on your specific worlds, or are you brave enough to venture where you please? Lottie, let's hear the classical dimension. (laughs) I wish you hadn't asked me first. I'm I'm somewhat embarrassed by this, because if, if you were asking me do I value and respect other genres beyond the classical world? I would have to answer unhesitatingly, unequivocally, yes, of course, I think all musical genres are completely valid. They must be by definition. But the truth of my life and experience and skill set is very much classical centric. And um, that's not that I rate it above others. It's just that is where I have experience. Yeah, I I mean, I think that makes loads of sense. Um, Jim? 
Uh, when you asked this question a week or so ago, just sort of passing, so if, uh, we might be talking about this. I said the only thing that popped into my mind was uh, the film The Blues Brothers. Do you remember that? Oh, and yes. they go to play in Bob's Country Bunker. So, what sort of music do you have? Oh, we have both kinds: country and western. And it's, uh, <laughs> I say, actually, for some people, a genre is so blinkered they cannot even believe that music exists outside that. Uh, for me, I try to listen to as much um different music as i possibly can um i think within a specific genre uh so probably sort of rock uh and progressive metal um some sort of electronica type stuff i'm probably more able and happy to go to dive deeper and to explore it if i want to listen to trying to listen to some classical music i, I the thing is you probably don't know where to start so you actually need to be guided mm. which is uh, why it's quite good to be able to talk to you charlie about that uh, or if i wanted to listen to some jazz chris i would sort of talk to you because you would know more about it than i would and probably be able to steer me in a in a specific direction i'm really glad you said that because that's what i feel in the opposite direction that I just don't know where to start with the kind of music that either of you is listening to, and so therefore I don't. See, I unhesitatingly go wherever my uh, my iPod finger guides me, or whatever is on the radio station. Mm. But that's a sort of blessing of being um, a jack of all trades, I guess, um, because I, you know, learned classical music as a kid, and then got into jazz, and then all your friends don't listen to either, so you sort of um, unwittingly get exposed to loads of stuff. But I was just going to come back to your opening sort of statement, Lottie, about being you know, the classic genre or the classical genre. It's huge, isn't it, compared to what Jim and I sort of reference. We're very much 20th century centric. You go back, well, as far as you please, right? And certainly up to the current day. So I don't think you're held back by choice. Absolutely. So the, the whole classical genre, I mean, it. Of course, within that, you then get a gazillion labels and, uh, you know, so you, we can talk about medieval or Baroque or Renaissance or whatever it might be. Um, and actually, I'm now reliving my undergraduate Viva horror story of Go on. Um, when I was I was asked how useful are these labels in talking about music and um and I, I made a bit of a prat of myself, really, because I tried to say something very deep and meaningful and just ended up standard petering out into a slightly embarrassed silence but um it's haunted me for years ever since um but anyway uh, these labels are useful insofar as they point you in a direction but i think as soon as you then allow yourself to be trapped by a label then it ceases to be useful and as you say the classical thing i think people have people that are not uh, very familiar with the 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 repertoire there is a sort of homogenous idea of what a classical music is and it's it's an orchestra or it's a, and it's violins or whatever but it's this huge range as you say going back to medieval time and right through to today and there are absolutely contemporary composers writing and um, writing music today and being performed today just as much as there are in the the commercial um world but it's it's um it has far less traction of course in the market i mean i I can't remember the exact figures, but isn't it something like 1% of the um, recorded music is classical or something? Well, I'm going to come at this. If you think about where is classical music consumed, a huge amount of what is now produced as classical, I say producer, that sounds like it's a, uh, a, a commodity or a product. I don't mean it like that. But um, 
it is almost exclusively, I'd say, so 99% of what is as produced now as classical music would be in film and television and uh, computer games and things like that. So it's still being produced and made. Uh, it's just where it's being listened to isn't is in a different place. People are perhaps not realizing they are listening to classical music. Yeah, that's interesting um, about <laughs> you unwittingly consume everything, right? So mm. the genre thing is already sort of busted. But I, I don't I don't necessarily believe you, Jim, because I think you'd happily <laughs> put on Bach or Beethoven or, you know, the planets or, mm-hmm. or whatever, and sort of know what you're doing and way around it and not be sort of like intimidated by it. It's just me, maybe something you don't choose to listen to. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, totally. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to sort of do myself a disservice by saying I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, I, I do listen to classical music and I've got quite a lot, but there is a huge... But you have to say that because Lottie's on the line. Oh, well, of course I do. Yes. And I don't want to, <laughs> uh, but I don't know where to, to to take my listening with that. Um, so there are I, I listen to Sanson and I listen to Tchaikovsky and I listen to uh, Beethoven, the host of planets, and there is sort of vast amounts of music I do listen to, um, and I recognise the influences that some of these composers have on a lot of the modern music that I listen to now. So Haken that I was talking about earlier on, there is quite a bit of um, I don't know, it's like. Con- uh, I guess uh, secular or sacred choral uh, chanting music, which you can hear bits of that coming through into their music, mm. but they also then bring in some jazz and they'll bring in some other. So the, the, this genre progressive brings in all these different elements to sort of mix them together to make something new. It, Lottie, if uh, what what Jim says is sort of essential composition guidance that you're going to be leaning on influences from other spaces and places. The classical world, as much as I know about Gershwin or Rimsky-Korsakoff or or others who delve into jazz, it seems a very fluid relationship. Do you listen to, say, I don't know, a piece of Gershwin and go, well, this is classical referencing jazz, or would you just go, you know, I just like it? Uh, I don't know that I've... There is a straightforward answer to that. I mean, I suppose it depends on the, on the context. If I were hearing it in a in a concert hall or if I were trying to take a music appreciation session, then yeah, I would be approaching it from the point of view of this is classical music with influences from another genre. But in terms of if I was just sticking it on to listen to, I wouldn't necessarily go through a intellectual process of what is it that I'm about to listen to in that respect. But this influencing from one genre to another goes, has always gone between types of music. Uh, you know, so even if you go back to, you know, really uh, much older music that we would consider part of the classical repertoire um, in terms of, I don't know, Renaissance choral music and and sacred uh, choral music. You know, people were writing masses to be sung in the churches and cathedrals that were influenced, not even only influenced, but directly quoting and built on sort of bawdy drinking songs or uh, or folk songs, um, that sort of thing. Or, you know, you can look at, I don't know, think of mm. something really classic like the Bach yeah. um, Goldberg variations. You know, he's quoting in that final quad libet in that movement, he's quoting, um, again, some sort of silly song from outside the classical genre. It's there all the time. And as you say, Chris, 20th century composers, very heavily influenced by jazz. How could you not be? And all those nationalist composers of the late 19th century across Europe who started picking up on their folk traditions and working all that into the music. I mean, if if music isn't alive and listening to 
everything it encounters, then it starts to lose its its relevance and its authenticity, I guess. Mm. So that's incredibly interesting to my mind that the genre is almost irrelevant to the contemporary composer, but for the listener going back in time, the genre almost seems essential to sort of place it somewhere. And you can connect back the journey and say, oh, look at all the influences. But the the person who finds themselves on the vanguard of, of creation really has no choice but to be referencing across genres. Um, they may specialise in a certain area of musical creation, but it's almost, if it's going to be driving forwards and progressive, it's going to essentially have to take on, on an influence that is yet unlabeled. Jim, do you agree with that? Yes, I think so. Um, what do you mean you think so? No, no, is that no, because no. what I said was complete rubbish? No, I... Of course it was. It was you, Chris. <laughs> No, uh, no, absolutely, absolutely. It's, That's better. Uh, it's. I think also, um, it's interesting to see. There's, I suppose, jazz um, as a sound when it first came into being was a completely new sound to Western ears because it was based on something that was alien to Western ears, which is African music. It was sort of African rhythms and and then that is the sort of from there going forward goes into blues and goes into the whole of the sort of the modern sort of rock things. And then so we become much more up to date from the sort of 1960s and 70s onwards, where you have people writing pop and rock stuff. Um who are hearing jazz and the blues influence, but they also have been growing up with the more Western influences, then get the sort of the classical music sort of being blended into it as well. Then you get this whole sort of homogenous thing of stuff coming from everywhere to become something completely new. I, I think we're going to need some guidance from our trained uh, correspondent on the call, Lottie, in a second, around, <laughs> around um, harmony and, and what we're hearing. Because... Jazz itself, um, the African uh, influence on rhythm is is unquestionable, uh, but there's also um, a, a rhythmic uh, relevance coming up from South America, and there's a melting pot okay, yeah, in, in South America, where you've also um, in southern USA, where you've also got the European tradition. So lots of, um, I mean, all of those musicians would have been listening and, and and playing the sheet music that was coming out of 19th century Europe which had you know, largely been classical. Um, so in terms of what your ears hear, even though the jazz musicians are doing something sort of different, they're building tonally on something which is incredibly familiar to Western ears. Um, and I, I hope Lottie's going to nod and explain to us that that is correct. Do you find, Lottie, that Western music per se, it doesn't really matter whether it's classical or jazz or rock or pop or whatever, because it's all like, yeah, sort of resolves and, you know, and discords and resolves and discords and resolves and the chord movements are all predictable. It is all the same to the extent that all of those genres are, by and large, and of course there are exceptions, but by and large, they're all using the same 12 notes. Yeah. And they're all using the same diatonic system uh, overwhelmingly. Again, there's big exceptions to that, particularly in the classical world, but the diatonic system, meaning what we understand as C major and F minor and, and all of that. So we all have these uh, essential scales and then harmony that can build from that. And you use the word discord, but that in itself is an interesting word. So if you asked uh, a, a medieval composer about the interval of a third, 
they would say to you, well, that's a discord, you can't use a third. But they weren't using the three at all? Yeah. They, they would think of it as a, as a discordant mm. interval. And uh, so that, that key system, although I've just said we're broadly using it, of course, actually that diatonic system and uh, equal temperament and all of that comes in really through late Renaissance and, and Baroque period. So anything before that, it's slightly anachronistic to say that. But on the other hand, you can still pick up on these systems. But yeah, so the medievalists were not using the third. And as you say, they would work with organum where you get parallel fifths quite a lot of the time. The, and that's a perfect interval to do with the harmonic series and stuff. And I'll not let's not go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, sorry, um, jazz listeners. <laughs> and then you have um, a strong influence from England, actually. Um, and John Dunstable is, is one of the big names involved. And he was quite keen to start using the third. And the English composers just started using the third. And it became you know, widely adopted and accepted. So, of course, by the time you're in the, the Renaissance um, period and Baroque period, the third is is a given. Um, but then again, you know, you still then got rules of what is discordant, what's allowed. And if you are going to have a discord, there are rules of how you approach it, how you set it up, and indeed how you get away from it or resolve it. And then you come into the um, 18th century, and that changes a bit again with Mozart and Haydn. And then in the 19th century is when it all starts to really uh, uh, well I was going to say getting pear-shaped but I mean that's not really what I mean at all but it, it, they everything starts to break down you get composers like Wagner doing really shocking things with the the, the famous Tristan chord and Debussy who starts adding notes to his chords so you no longer have a straightforward chord as Mozart would expect it you now get added notes in there which are there not for functional purposes they're not trying to tell you about a key or anything they're just moving they're just saying isn't this a nice sound and it starts to destabilize the the whole system so that then by the 20th century tonality can break down altogether. For, for you Jim do you think that you know, I think we've spoken about what we owe, or what we alluded to what we owe the 19th century for the for that breakdown that Lottie yeah. just so eloquently explained. But do you think there's more in your sort of genres or the space where you operate for people to keep pushing the boundaries tonally and, and to go, wow, that was a very unexpected sort of chord sequence or yeah, passing notes? Yeah, totally, totally, totally. So I think um, there are uh, very obvious chord sequences and progressions which are used in a lot of modern music which are what you expect to expect to hear and uh, there are also a lot of artists probably sort of lesser well-known ones who try to do things very differently so they'll try to use progressions that you're not expecting notes that you're not expecting um time signatures that you're not expecting instruments that you're not expecting so i suppose the assumed wisdom that a pop song is going to be three or four minutes long is only good for a certain sort of music. So if you then want to actually take music as being uh, an art form, doing something different, then you actually, why is, it, why is that amount of time relevant? Let's make a, a piece of music which I suppose you can only limit it by the... Uh, at one stage, it being how long, how long, how much can you fit on one side of a of a twelve inch record, or how much can you now fit on a CD? So a song could be seventy four minutes long, or a piece of music, um, unless it's just be played live. Yeah. Uh, so there are those sort of differences, but yes, absolutely, there are um, artists who are massively pushing the boundaries of what you can and can't do, what you should and shouldn't do. Um, I was just going to say that 
both I suspect speaking on behalf of Lottie and, and for me, very often I suspect we've both found ourselves in classical or jazz settings where we've wished the piece of music was three or four minutes long, depending on, <laughs> depending on who's playing it. <laughs> um, so just sort of working around genre a bit and, and just moving space slightly into, but into a space of mental wellness, I find great security and assurance in listening uh, or having a, a clue to what I'm going to listen to and then find myself going, you know, let's just say funk. I, I'm really liking funk at the minute and I can look that up and I know all the funk musicians and it's like a, comfort, a, a comfortable space and I can listen to new funk that I haven't heard before, but I feel sort of quite comfortable with it. And I can do the same if I'm feeling, you know, into classical musical, you know, I think, well, I quite like Mozart, so therefore I probably might like sort of late Haydn or, or, or whatnot and I'll probably like other, other composers of the era. I think in that sense, my mental wellness doesn't like to be pronged or prodded too much. Do you agree? Or do you think actually that's completely the wrong take? Uh, I think you're absolutely on to something, but I think one must not fall at the first hurdle, as it were. So I think you're quite right. All of us find a way into music through familiarity. So it might be through a genre, as you say, that you, you know you want to listen to some funk, or it might be through a composer, or it might be a piece that you know, and it's a favourite piece of yours. If you're listening to something new, it's harder because you don't know what's coming. But if it is part of a, uh, a sound world that you recognise, it is easier. And mm. so this is a big part of what I try to do in the music appreciation classes, is I'm trying to introduce people to music in a way that makes it accessible. So, OK, you've never heard this piece before, but let me tell you what to listen for in the first... 30 seconds you know listen out for that oboe you're going to notice the trombone do something in particular and once you give people some signposts they've got a way in and then after that they can grow with it and become familiar with it but that I think that is a helpful way in right but you were saying about uh mental well-being and um you know I think one you, ha you sort of have to go back almost to what actually is music what is music for what is the point of music and if, if you get too detached about it, that it's just a thing, you can put it on a shrine or on a pedestal and say, well, that's what it is and it must stay there. But actually, all music is, is, is communication or expression mm. from one person or people to other people. You're, and so therefore, any genre, if it's authentic, of course it's valid because that is what I feel. That is what I say, what I want to say. That is how I need to express myself right now. And therefore, if you if you do that and you can you you're free to express yourself, but also you can hear others expressing something that chimes with you. That's massive to mental well-being. And that's why music is so crucial and why we all need music in our lives. And any attempt to shut any of it in any little corner and gift wrap it and lock it behind bars. Actually, to me, that feels like you're you're stealing from it. Yeah, I th I th I've never thought about what you, you know, just said that music's power is actually in its ambiguity. It allows the listener to write their own story to what they're hearing and how it makes them feel, how they're feeling that day, yeah. where, where, what journey they wish to go on. And they can feel something or imagine something wholly different from, 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 from the person next to them. Yeah, I've, um, I've, 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 I've um, made a video about this a while back about what is music. 
and uh, huh. one of the one of the uh, I see we should have done this before. Well, no, no. Uh, one of the, before one of, now, Jay. <laughs> one of the conclusions I came to is that two people can hear the same piece of music, and for one person, it would be the most amazing, incredible thing they've ever heard in their life. And for somebody else, it says, oh, this is just the biggest pile of pants I've heard. It's awful. And what makes that so? The two people, um, if, if they've not lived the same lives and had every life experience the same as each other, of course they're going to find the music different. Every single thing that influences or has a little, um, sends somebody off in one direction, somebody off in a different direction, or experiences they have, or things they hear, people they talk to, every single little thing they've experienced in their life will prepare them for that one moment where they hear that piece of music. And if the things are not lined up exactly, they're going to hear mm. it differently and it will be awful. And that's kind of why music is different for everybody. Yeah, that's interesting. And then what about the musical genre for the importance of the musician? So I was just thinking while you were speaking, Jim, that I want to listen to Sonny Rollins play not just six choruses as an improvisation, he could play 36. And to me, it feels like five minutes. I wonder what, if I would feel quite so enthusiastic about Sonny Rollins if I put him in front of a, an orchestra or if I put him in a rock band um, with a completely different sort of set of parameters. I might not want to hear him play in that same way if he was uh, following notes on the page or if he was responding more to a guitar-led music or something, where genre therefore seems to me critical to the musician to find their right space to express themselves fully uh, and to be the musician and the storyteller they need to be. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's right. So I think there's... Um, like parameters and there's that age-old thing isn't there about the, the freedom is in the parameters and you know that children will play more spontaneously if they're in a playground with fences and, and walls than if everything is completely open mm. and I think that's obviously going to be true in music that if there are, are no rules at all it is quite hard to create something that has meaning beyond that moment um, and uh, so genre does help in that it gives you your parameters for now, but it's not to say they are the only parameters in the world. It's just that for what I'm doing right now, this is, is where I am. So in my world, for example, I, one of the closest analogies with jazz would be the Baroque era, funny enough. So, you know, we're going back there, you know, 300, 300 years or, 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 or so, and you've got um, a, a great deal of improvisation wrapped up within Baroque, partly through the continuo playing, but I'm thinking very strongly about the uh, singers in the operas and in the Da Capo aria where it's all about, um, you know, you, you're given free reign to ornament and, and recreate on the on the, uh, the repeat, as it were. But actually it's not free reign because it is, as you say, within rules and parameters and this is there's still this particular harmonic framework. And, you know, when you're... When you're a student learning to do this stuff, I can remember because I specialised in early music for a while and trying to work out these ornaments. I can remember, you know, I'd come up with something that I thought fitted only to be met with people that knew much better than me and say, yeah, but that's really not in keeping with the style. And so you'd have to, to think again. That's really interesting. So I've just suddenly put Sonny Rollins back in to the era of Bach or something. Mm -hmm. And he's and he's not playing the saxophone. He's playing a, a basso continuo on the harpsichord and he's having a whale of a time improvising. And then my sad little brain started thinking about Bill and Ted and what would happen if you took Beethoven or Mozart from the past and you gave them, I don't know, the sort of keyboard and musical recording setup James has got, would they be writing dance music? 
I don't know. Have you thought about that, Jim? That's probably the type I of think, place where you probably yeah. have spent a lot of <laughs> spent well, time I, thinking. I think there's um I think there's a lot to be said that uh, people use the tools to that are around them at the time, don't they? So absolutely, um, uh, composers from uh, from back in history would absolutely be embracing every single tool they could get their hands on to sort of help to realize the mm. sounds they have in their head. So they may not be necessarily using an orchestra. So Mozart actually may end up writing uh, all his music by himself in a studio with a keyboard and a computer and hundreds of instruments that are locked inside his computer because it still realizes the sound that he's trying to get out. Just at the time when he was uh, writing and composing, his uh, only way to be able to get those sounds out was to use an orchestra and uh, a choir of singers. Now, since, since we three siblings are here um, and my youngest daughter, no, my eldest daughter said, is granny going to be on the call? And I said, no, but I'm sure we'll find a way to reference her. And I am going to find a way to reference her because that's made me think about, do you remember that show that was on television five, ten years ago where they got famous people to conduct an orchestra? Oh, yes. And um, it, do, it shouldn't probably surprise any of us that uh, I think it was Goldie. Goldie, yeah. Just really sort of excelled at it and yeah. found his space because I guess for him it was like conducting an orchestra was like choosing sound patches or whatever. On, on a synthesized range and just being able to build something and control multiple voices. Yeah. Is, that, is that really what, I mean, I didn't watch it. But. Yeah, it was like watching him uh, conducting. It was like, he, okay, I've got these MIDI controllers in front of me, but now they are uh, using gestures rather than actually touching them. So I so was doing this with it. I want it to get louder, so I'm doing this. And actually the people are responding to what I'm doing. This is absolutely fantastic. So it was, yeah, yeah. it really much was like that. So he was just using the only way he knew how to communicate with the music was with controllers, but with the, on the end of his hands. And he's actually pointing at people and getting things, people to do things. So it's fantastic. It and, you know, I think it was, it was good. It was good for sort of people to see that. And obviously for mum, she set up that massive drum and bass club. <laughs> Under, underground scene that's still strong in mid suffolk to this day uh, the mid suffolk massive yeah yeah sick <laughs> so we've ranged across so much today um but we've only sort of gone down a few avenues and roads and we haven't i don't feel completed a journey it'd be fantastic to chat again um and pick up some of these threads the journey will never be finished that's the thing it's the volume of music in the world is such that no one can ever hear it all and no one can ever even scratch the surface of what, what's there. And you yeah. can only just sort of hope what you do here is good. There is a, a whole history of existence. Yeah. Uh, human people have been making music. And Lottie, do you, do you feel satisfied with resolution? Or do you feel that it's, it's all right just being a bit of a, an unwoven fabric at the minute? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could, as you said, we could just carry on chatting all day I mean and as James says there's a, so much music but you know yeah. actually even since James James said that a minute ago there's more music out there that's the point music is spontaneous and real and ubiquitous and we will always seek to express ourselves that way and so 
it's a it's a wonderful wonderful gift absolutely um and of course the greatest gift of all uh was jazz and on that note <laughs> i shall say thank you to my kind guests today and i hope to have both lottie and jim back in the future do check out jim's uh, youtube channel uh it's fantastic watching him listen to a whole range of uh different records and music suggestions and if you want to know more about uh lottie's music appreciation classes you can drop her a line and get in touch with her on her website, charlottenewstead.co.uk. Um, and that just leaves me to say uh, thank you, dear listener, for listening today. Next time I'll be chatting with a great uh, bass player and composer, Daniel Casimir. Don't forget to keep your ears fresh and always look to connect with something new. So goodbye, Jim. See you later, man. Goodbye, Lottie. Bye-bye. Goodbye, all. <laughs>